Uh, We're going to get in God's word here this morning. Uh, We're going to be in the book of Acts, chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, you can open it up there. Acts is like the fifth book in the New Testament coming off of the Gospels. Um, If you don't have a Bible, you can find uh, a Bible for you on the back table. Um, And uh, if you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. Or if you know someone you want to give that Bible to, uh, that's why we exist. We exist to uh, promulgate the Word of God and, and spread it abroad. So feel free to... Uh, give those Bibles away. Uh, This morning, let's read Acts 2, verses 1 through 13. I'll read it, pray, and then we will uh, dive in for for the, the sermon here. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. These are the disciples now. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. Would you pray with me, guys? God, we just ask your blessing upon our time. We ask for your direction upon our time. We recognize that we come to your word with dull senses and sometimes calloused hearts, minds distracted. God, and so we need a move of your spirit even now as we read about a move of your spirit in the second chapter of Acts. We need a move of your spirit here in this place right now. Help us to see, help us to feel, help us to tune in to what you're saying to the church, to us. God, don't let your word pass us by without us seeing the beauty, the wonder of the gospel, the cross of Jesus Christ, and what your love means for us. And God, your heart. God, I pray that you would meet each one of us the way we need it this morning. Whether that's conviction of sin that kind of hiding or living in and you put your finger on that in love and call us out from it, whether it's comfort in our suffering and our struggle. We feel abandoned or lost or confused and we need our, our good shepherd to lead us through the valley of the shadow. Or some mix of all these things, God, I just pray that you'd meet us in just the way we need it and only in the way that only you can. And do it through your word, God. Jesus' name, amen. Um, 
So last time, uh, I actually, this is now our kind of second time through these 13 verses. And last time, if you were with us, uh, essentially what I tried to do was, was look at the day of Pentecost, the outpouring of the Spirit, and kind of I, I outlined for us what it has to say about Jesus and what he's accomplished for us in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, because it's communicating to us something about our King, right? And so I brought out four different things that, that it's communicating. It's showing that Jesus is the new Adam. It's showing that he's the new Abraham, the new Moses, and he brings the new wine of the Spirit and the new covenant age. And I don't have time to go through any of that, so uh, if you missed it or you've already forgotten it, like probably most of you have, you can catch it online. This morning, all I want to do is actually kind of focus in, laser focus, just kind of draw your attention in on uh, the last, uh, or I guess it's the um, first part of the, the statement there in verse 4, where Luke writes this, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. I just want to focus in this morning on this idea of being filled with the Holy Spirit. And I want to know, what does this mean? What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? How do we know when it's happening to us? Are there any marks by which we can identify this sort of occurrence, you know, in our lives or around us in the church or in our city? How, how do you know? What does it mean? We'll see it happen time and again with these disciples throughout the book of Acts. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. They're full of the Holy Spirit. Acts 4.8, Acts 4.31, Acts 7.55, 9.17, 13.9, 13.52. And you could just do a word study on, on, on filled or, or full and you'll see. Shows up time and again. And we know that Paul even commands us, Ephesians 5.18, which I briefly touched on last time, he commands us to be filled with the Spirit. And so we got to be clear, and again, I want to ask, what does it mean? What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Now, uh, this last week, as I said, I was in Flagstaff with, with my, uh, visiting my mom and my dad. They just got kind of a place to retire there, pretty awesome kind of cabin, big, uh, big uh, property and all this. It's neat. It's a great, great time. One of the things we did while we were there uh, was actually take Levi to essentially what what's, was his first time in the movie theaters, all right? And so um, there aren't very many kids' movies out, and he certainly wouldn't be interested in The Little Mermaid. Uh, so uh, the only one that they still had playing there was... Uh, uh, Super Mario Brothers. Uh, I don't know how many of you guys took your kids to see that. Uh, wasn't that great? They just kind of bop people around, and you know that's the end. Uh, but if you've ever played those those games, um, I remember playing them as a kid. Um, things like that. You know that there's like these little I don't know what you call them, but these little boxes with a question mark on them that you run around, and when you when you bonk into those, and it's like a supercharge. All right. You know, like a little mushroom pops out or something like that. You, you get kind of like a power-up for your player, right? And so all of a sudden, Mario grows bigger. Or now he can throw fireballs. Or he can like jump like a frog. Or I never got why he's flying like a fox, because foxes don't fly. But he, he's flying like a fox now, and his little tail is whipping around. Like, I powered up. I hit the little box, and now I supercharged. And I bring this up uh, because I think sometimes... 
as Christians, when we consider what it means to be filled with the Spirit or, or baptized with the Spirit, whatever, whatever terminology you want to use, we kind of think of it along the lines of like a Super Mario game. Like, oh, it's like a power-up. Like, oh, we just kind of bonked into something good. The Holy Spirit fell. And now, we're, you know, we got extra, extra strength, extra power. We can go slay some dragons and, and save some princesses, right? That's kind of how we might think about this idea of being filled with the Spirit. It gives us some sort of a power-up, right? Now, to be fair, it does seem that um, this filling with the Holy Spirit is supposed to help us, you know, be more effective in ministry. So, in a sense, it does uh, give us more power, you could say. In fact, Jesus even says that explicitly. So when he calls his disciples to wait for the Holy Spirit before they run off into ministry, this is what he's getting at. Acts 1.8, he says this, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So of course there's power here. The Holy Spirit does give us power for effective ministry and to live, you know, in accordance to God's will and all of this, but this isn't a mere power up, right? There's something deeper. There's something more to it, and that's what I'm interested in considering with you this morning. So there's really just two questions um, that I want to, to ask and attempt to answer. Uh, question number one, what does it mean? What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Question number two, how do we get it, right? We've got to ask, what does it mean and how do we get it? You may recall I asked these same two questions a, a while back with regard to what Jesus calls the baptism with the Holy Spirit in Acts 1-5, but here I'm going to bring out different nuances and particularly focus in on this idea of filling. So first, what does it mean? What does it mean? Um, I'll give you my answer up front, and then I'm going to attempt to show you uh, from Scripture and even from uh, other Christians' testimony throughout history, you know, why I believe that is the case. So what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Um, certainly we can talk about the fruits of the Spirit, right? Love, peace, patience, kindness, those things you see in Galatians 5. That's part of it. And of course, as I've been mentioning, we could talk about the power that comes, or you might say the gifts of the Holy Spirit, like you see in 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 14. Certainly we know those things are involved uh, when it comes to being filled with the Holy Spirit, but we also see, I think, and that's what I'll show you now, that there's an even more essential, more fundamental mark to all of this. At the bottom... When the Spirit of God comes and fills you, the first thing he does, I think, is open your eyes a little wider to the love of God for you in Jesus. It's actually not a, a power up or so like you start glowing or you hit the star and you can run off and you're immortal. It's actually something that he does in your heart where he warms your heart to the warmth of his or by the warmth of his for you. He opens your eyes to the love that he has for you. The gospel becomes real for you in a way perhaps it hadn't to that point. Maybe you heard it. Maybe you heard, oh, Jesus died for me. I know, I was raised in the church, or I've heard it a thousand times, and I get it. But when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you really get it. Like something changes inside. The, the gospel now isn't just good news um, you know, for the world. It's good news for you. And you sense it. 
Man, the Lord loves me. I think that's what happens when you're filled with the Holy Spirit. And I wonder, have you ever had a moment or a season with God like that? Where you're just amazed at his love for you, taken aback by it. Well, you wonder what was happening. How, how did that happen? I'll tell you how. The Holy Spirit was filling you. That's what the Holy Spirit does. The great Welsh preacher and pastor, some of you may have heard of him, Martin Lloyd-Jones. I think I misspelled his name on your uh, worship guide there. It's Martin with a Y, which makes him extra cool, right? <laughs> it's like Brian with a Y. Well, uh, anyways, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, amazing guy. I've read a lot of his books, appreciate his ministry. Uh, when he's in agreement with me, I feel like I'm on a, in a good place. When he's discussing the baptism or filling with the Holy Spirit, here's what he writes. One pronounced characteristic that always accompanies it is an assurance of the love of God to us in Jesus Christ. This is the most important and remarkable. Now, I would say personally that this is the greatest and most essential characteristic of the baptism with the Spirit. What is it? Assurance of the love of God to us in Jesus Christ. His love becomes evident to you when you're filled with His Spirit. Now, um, admittedly, what I am saying here isn't immediately evident on the surface of Acts 2. If you're looking for this on the surface of Acts 2, you, you won't exactly see it, but it is there. Uh, in fact, after all, I think it's this understanding of the love of God as the Spirit fills them that can really only kind of make sense of what we see happening here. And I'll, I'll show you that uh, momentarily. So we see that they are speaking in tongues, right? They're filled with the Holy Spirit. The most immediate thing we read is that, man, they started to speak in different tongues. You go, that sounds like a Super Mario Bro power-up to me, Nick. That sounds like a supercharge. And now they're, they're making all these weird, you know, language things, and they're, they're looking all crazy. And you say, well, okay, maybe, but what are they actually saying? Did you tune into that? Because we're told in Acts 2.11, here's what they're speaking about. Quote, we hear them telling in our own tongues, what? The mighty works of God. This isn't just random. This isn't just gibberish. They are praising God for his mighty works. In other words, something has happened that's opened up their eyes and the, their, their hearts, you could say, to, to what God has done for them, especially in Jesus Christ. And they get some of this and they're praising God for these redemptive, mighty works. You could say they get something of his love in a way that they hadn't before, that the truth of it all had been made real to their hearts by the Holy Spirit, and so they're speaking with joy and freedom and fearlessness. And that leads, uh, of course, to the second thing that we see that we might be thinking is just power-up kind of idea, and that's their bold witness, this sort of courage and bravery, right? that suddenly they seem to have. Because what we realize, they're not just praising God amongst themselves, they're praising God out in the open, where it's dangerous, obviously. I mean, Jesus, the one that they are proclaiming, was just crucified some 50 days earlier. So they know it's crazy, and yet there's boldness. Well, where does that come from? It comes from a knowledge of the love of God. That nothing can, if God is for me, who could be against me? If God has conquered death, Satan, sin, on my behalf, 
Why would I be scared of the Jewish leaders or the Romans? So they are speaking in many tongues, praising God for his works, and they're doing it out in open, out in the open, unafraid, fearless. But at the bottom isn't just the filling of the spirit like a power-up or a supercharge, but the filling of the spirit that's opened up their eyes a little wider to the love of God for them in Jesus Christ. So the connection is here in our text between the filling of the Spirit and the love of God in Jesus, but it's more underground. It's more subterranean. And I just want to kind of dig with you this morning, get under that, and kind of bring this connection out to the light of day. And in order to do, in order to do that, um, what I actually want to do is take us to other places in Scripture where it's made more plain. This filling of the Spirit and, and its connection with the love of God that's made evident to us in that. I'll take you to three key texts in particular where it's made especially plain for us, I think. I'll just uh, begin here. Text number one, Ephesians 3, 14 to 19. You can turn there if you want. Uh, Ephesians 1, or I'm sorry, Ephesians 3, 14 to to 19. This is actually really the the text I was reading um, that threw the lights on for me with regard to this connection. It's a beautiful prayer flowing off the pen of the Apostle Paul for the church there in Ephesus. It's amazing. And we can learn a lot from this prayer. As, as, a, as a pastor, a minister, a leader, I can learn a lot uh, from this prayer because it's essentially Paul praying for, you know, his people. And I I remember bringing this to my wife and telling her I was going to be in Ephesians 3, you know, for a little bit. And and she said, oh, that's what I pray for the kids every single night. That's a good mom right there. Um, But what exactly does Paul pray for? Let's look at it briefly. Check it out. Ephesians 3, beginning in verse 14. For this reason, Paul says, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge." that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, uh, as Paul is prone to do, this is one of those kind of infamous run-on sentences of his where he just keeps going. I mean, a lot of times when he's writing, he just, I mean, if he were in, you know, my English class, the dude would be getting like D's because it just keeps rolling out with these, these words. And my kind of read on that is it's almost like he, he, he isn't even willing to take a breath lest he lose his train of thought, you know, lest he kind of uh, forget to or fail to convey all that's on his heart. He's just like, like a kid who's so excited, like my boy after watching like a Star Wars movie or something. And he's like, breathe, bro. It's just a one run, you know, one long run on sentence. Because of the realities that he's trying to convey. It's beautiful. I don't have time to tease apart everything for us here, but I at least want to make note of the way Paul uses, I think, at least the same constellation of words that we see back in Acts 1 and 2. This is where the connection started to be made for me. So he talks about power, verse 16, right? Power, that God would fill you with power. He talks about the Holy Spirit, verse 16. 
He talks about being filled with all the fullness of God. Verse 19. So all these same constellation ideas are there. And then here's the light bulb for me. All of this power, spirit, fullness. It all connects to and turns on this idea of comprehending the love of God for us in Jesus Christ. In other words, what happens when the Spirit comes in power and we're filled up with all the fullness of God? We get his love. Verse 19, the love of Christ for us. That's what happens. Uh, the language Paul uses is intriguing because he's not just saying, I hope you get a general sense of um, God's love for you or some esoteric, you know, experience of it. Uh, he starts to try grasping at language. I don't even fully know what he's talking about here, but he starts to pile on words, right? If you notice that, he says, man, I, I pray that you would comprehend the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of God's love for you in Jesus. It seems he's trying to say, in essence, I pray that the Spirit come in power and fill you so that you would grasp something of the infinity of God's love for you. Like the never-ending nature of it. Just the height. The, right, like all, I mean, you, you guys are into like geometry and stuff. are like, yes, I can understand this verse. But you can't because there's no boundary. It never ends. That's the point. It's just his love is going in all directions. It's, it's almost as if, you know, when God pours out his spirit upon us, I mean, we're plunged into like the, the, the depths of the ocean of his love, right? And there's no bottom to it. There's no top to it. There's no boundary. There's no shore. There's no coastline. It's just never ending in every direction. Height, width, depth, breadth. It's amazing. Now, this is why I think there's somewhat of an irony actually built into his prayer, if you noticed it. Um, he says, I pray the Spirit will help you know that which you can never fully know. That's the prayer. It's right there on the surface. It's amazing. But, I mean, it makes sense to us, right? I mean, when you really think about it, how can the finite creature ever fully comprehend the never-ending love of an infinite God? You can't. But the Spirit of God, who comes from God and to man, somehow can convey to us a bit of that. He can help us get something of it. He can give us the strength to comprehend, as Paul says, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. I pray you know that which you can't really know. The only way you're going to know that which you can't really know is by the Holy Spirit being poured out upon you in power. Your eyes are open. You see. You can comprehend the incomprehensible. You can know the unknowable. Because the Spirit has come and filled you up. I love what um, Tim Keller brings out from this text in his book, Centered Church. Uh, Joey and I are reading that as we're kind of going through uh, for some of our elder meetings and things. Um, and it's been a, a great read. I encourage uh, you all to check it out. But there's a, a, a part in there where he deals with Ephesians 3. And here's what he writes. Uh, in Ephesians 3, 14 to 21, Paul prays that the Spirit will strengthen his readers with power in their inner being. For what? 
so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and so we may know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled uh, to the measure of all the fullness of God. But elsewhere, Paul states that Christians already have Christ dwelling in them, Ephesians 2.22, and already have come to fullness in him, Colossians 2.9-10. Taken together, these passages must mean that while these things are objectively true of Christians, the Spirit can make the love of God so spiritually real and affecting that it changes how we live. He wants us not just to know the fact of Christ's love, but to have power to grasp the infinity and wonder of it. This is what happens when the fullness of the Spirit is mentioned. The truth begins to shine out to us. Did you catch what he's saying? I mean, for Christians, and even if you're not a Christian, you're on the outside, you may hear, you may know, you may affirm, oh yeah, I understand the love of God, but when the Spirit fills you, you really understand. The penny drops, so to speak. You go from kind of uh, sitting, to take that analogy of, of the ocean, you go from sitting on the sand, kind of admiring the view of the sea, to suddenly, man, you're in the water. You're going down, as it were. You're drowning in it. You get it. Um, the great American evangelist D.L. Moody, some of you have maybe heard of him, he writes of his own experience of this filling with the Spirit. He was dissatisfied with his ministry, crying out for more. Here's what he says. I began to cry as never before for a greater blessing from God. The hunger increased. I kept on crying all the time that God would fill me with his Spirit. Well, one day in the city of New York, oh, what a day. I cannot describe it. I seldom refer to it. It is almost too sacred an experience to name. I can only say God revealed himself to me and I had such an experience of his love, mark that, that I had to ask him to stay his hand. (laughs) It's like, I'm going down in the water. I'm in the ocean. This is too much. It's overwhelming. I actually had to ask God to stop. Had such an experience of his love. And he says this, I went to preaching again. The sermons were not different. I did not present any new truths, and yet hundreds, and history bears this out, hundreds were converted. I would not now be placed back where I was before that blessed experience if you should give me all the world. It would be small dust in the balance. So was there power for ministry and and witness flowing from Moody's life? Yes, absolutely. Did it come from the filling with the Holy Spirit? Sure, but in between the filling and the power, something else happened. Did you catch that? Namely, he had an experience of the love of God. He he got something more of the love of God. He was plunged into the ocean of the love of God for him in Jesus. And everything else came out from that. And so it will be for you and I as well. And so I wonder, are you praying for this filling of the Spirit like Paul for the Ephesians? Are you you praying? Are you crying out like like D.L. Moody? I cried out and I cried out and I cried out again. Are you crying out for yourself, but also for your kids and for your family and for this church and for our city and for the world? And we want to know the height and, and the width and the depth and the breadth and whatever other language Paul uses of the love of God for us in Jesus. But we can't get that without the Spirit coming, filling us, giving us the power to see it, to comprehend it. Text number two, 
Romans 5, 5. Here's the next one where this connection between the filling of the Spirit and the love of God is made abundantly plain. Romans 5, 5, and we'll kind of take in the context as well. So beginning in verse 1 of Romans 5, just listen to this. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not, dis, uh, does not put us to shame. Why? Here it is, verse 5. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts. How? Through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. When God fills us with his spirit, he fills us with a fresh sense of his love for us. Pouring it out. Filling you, filling me. And this love gives us hope if you follow the logic there, even in hard times, gives you the ability to endure, gives you the ability to rejoice, even when stuff goes wrong, even, even, even when the doors seem to be slammed in your face, even when people seem to be against you, even when your body just won't get right, even when you can't find you know, the fellowship that you long for, even when the job is just not panning out, or the bo- you can have hope. Why? Because the Holy Spirit has been given to you is opening your eyes to the love of God for you even in the middle of that. You know, God is for me. And if God is for me, who can be against me? All this will work for good in the end. But now, let me say this. To this point, um, it's not been particularly clear, I don't think, just what the Spirit illumines for us. All right, we get this idea that, okay, there's a sense of the love of God for us in Jesus and the height, the width, the depth. Well, it sounds nice. The language sounds nice. But where exactly do we see it? How exactly do we see it? Where, in other words, is the Spirit directing his spotlight, as it were? What is he illumining for us in particular so that we get the love of God for us, so that we see it in all of its infinity and in multi-dimensions? This is what comes out more explicitly in the verses that follow where Paul goes on from this and he continues this flow of thought about the love of God that's made evident to us by the Spirit. Here's what he says, verse 6 of Romans 5 now. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God, and here it is, mark this, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The Spirit of God, if I had to say, the Spirit of God spotlights the cross of Christ. Or if it helps you to remember it, the cross of Christ is ever in the crosshairs of the Spirit of God. Spotlighting the cross. How do we know that God loves us? It's not just some weird feeling, some sentimental, gushy feeling that the Spirit gives us. He opens our eyes to perceive the love of God for us at the cross of Jesus Christ. 
We know that God loves us, Paul tells us, because Christ died for us, verse 8. That's how you know. There is tangible, objective reality. Hanging on that cross. We look up with the eyes of our hearts at the man of sorrows, hanging there, blood dripping from his brow, his hands, his feet, his side. And maybe you look, and when you're not filled with the Spirit, you say, oh, that's kind of weird. That's kind of gross, actually. That's unnecessary. That's a little bit of an overreaction. Or maybe, that's nice, that's kind, that's cute. But when the Holy Spirit fills you, and you don't get some just general sense of his love, what happens is your eyes, as you're looking up at the cross, you see the man of sorrows there hanging for you. You can just say how cute, how nice. You say, how could it be? Tears flowing from your eyes. How could it be? Amazing love. Like Charles Wesley once sung, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? That's what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He spotlights the cross and you see it and you get it. It's for you. Penny drops. He loves me. He's hanging there for me. Why would he be doing that? How could it be? Right? Now, something needs to be said here. Um, The cross, as we should be aware, I think, uh, actually cuts in two directions. Um, And so when the Spirit fills us and spotlights the cross for us, we're moved along these same two lines as well. Here's what I mean. The cross, as I say often in this place, lowers us to the dirt and lifts us to the sky at the same exact time. It cuts in two directions. It humbles me to the ground and it lifts me to the heavens. That's what happens when we truly see the cross, when the Spirit opens up our eyes to the gospel. On the one hand, we see our sin, so terrible, so grotesque, in the eyes of a holy God that when it's put upon the back of his beloved son, Jesus has to die. If he's going to save us, the cross is utterly necessary. That's how filthy I am. That's how detestable my sin is. That's what I deserve. That's what the cross says. That humbles you to the ground. Should. Would. Will. If you get it. If the spirit would fill us. But on the other hand, we don't just see our sin. We see the love of God. So wonderful, so magnificent. Because though Jesus didn't have to take our sin upon himself, he chose to do so willingly, desiring to do it. He gave his life for us. Not just he had to, he wanted to. It's not just that I'm that bad, it's that he's that loving as well. And so I would say there's a bit of a paradox here, isn't there? The deeper you let the Spirit take you into your own junk. Seems ironic. Our culture doesn't get it. The deeper you let the Spirit take you into your own junk and garbage and sin, 
the higher he can also take you into the love of God for you in Jesus, the more the cross will mean to you. You know, we live in a culture that wants perhaps the love of God, but don't you dare tell me about my sin. And they just hollow the whole thing out. It's like eating cotton candy. I love cotton candy. When we got the cotton candy maker for the church, that was my idea. That was like, that's a life goal of mine to have a cotton candy machine. And I just use the church as a way of getting that. So we can use it for outreach. I'm just kidding. We are using it for outreach. And for, I'll probably break it out the, the next uh, Sunday Funday we have. But I love cotton candy, but it's like you go to eat it and there's nothing there. It's sweet. But there's no substance. That's the love of God without knowledge of sin. They go together. It's a package deal. The Spirit opens our eyes to the depths of our depravity, and then he, no sooner does he, do, does he do that than he lifts our eyes to see the wonder of his love and grace and mercy comes together. And that's really the clear meaning of the logic Paul strings together for us in Romans 5, 7 to 8. Did you catch that? It's one thing for Jesus to die for a righteous man. Somebody may die for a good man. Okay, well, he was a nice guy. It makes sense. You'd want to honor him. You'd want to lay down your life. He was a prize. He was a treasure. Fine. All right, good. But he goes on to say, listen, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That, that's the logic. You want to know the heights of his love? What really sets that in contrast is seeing your own sin. I was not a prize to be won. I was not a righteous man. I was not a good man. I wasn't a friend of God. Oh, makes sense. He's going to save his friends. I was an enemy of God. Well, I was still a sinner. Christ died for me. That's how he demonstrates his love. The Holy Spirit opens our eyes to these things. We know the depths, we know the heights. This is why George Whitfield, I told you I was going to try to bring in some testimony from Christian history just to try to help us out. George Whitfield, the towering evangelist of the 18th century, he, he, he writes somewhat curiously of one of his more profound encounters with the Spirit of God. Here's what he says. My own soul was so full that I wept before the Lord and had a deep sense of what? My own vileness. That's an old way of saying, my sin, I'm gross. I could see my own vileness. But here's what he said. Let me, let me catch, back, catch you back up into the flow of his thought. I had a deep sense of my own vileness and the sovereignty and greatness of God's everlasting love at one and the same time. They come together. He lowers us to the dirt, lifts us to the sky. The cross cuts in both directions. This is what being filled with the Spirit starts to open our eyes to. Man, I am a great sinner, but he's an even greater Savior. The love of God. This isn't just, just to be clear, this is not something that you need just at the start of your Christian life that gets you saved. This is something we need our eyes open to constantly. I, I need personal revivals, personal fillings of the Holy Spirit constantly, or it just kind of goes, you know, grayscale. You look at the cross that once captivated your heart, and you go, ah. yeah, of course. We need the Spirit to help us get what's actually going on there, the love of God for us. 
Uh, the last text, text number three, Romans eight fifteen to 17, um, says uh, that, well, actually, I'm not going to read it here. Just give me a moment. We'll, we'll, you can make your way there. I'll read it in a second. But um, Romans eight fifteen to 17, while you're turning there, I, I wanted to kind of revisit uh, some of Martin Lloyd-Jones' thoughts. He actually wrote a book on, you know, the baptism of the Spirit, filling of the Spirit, that sort of a thing. And some of his thoughts have been helpful to me. And uh, I think they'll, they'll, they'll help on this text as well. But to kind of back into it, um, let, me, let me communicate something from him that I found helpful. Um, he talks about these three different uh, levels or types of assurance that we can have um, as, as uh, followers of Jesus, right? Uh, assurance uh, that God's with us, that God loves us, okay? And the first uh, level, it's kind of like this ascending staircase where it gets greater the deeper you go here. But the first level is this assurance that comes from the deduction from scripture. That's what he would say which is where you, you know, you read the scriptures, you go, okay, God has spoken. He, he doesn't lie. I see the promise. I see the reality of the cross. I believe that. Uh, I have assurance because it's in God's word. I may not always feel it, but I fight for faith in it regardless because God has spoken it. It's true. There's an assurance that comes from deduction based on the scriptures. The second layer that he talks about or level that he talks about is the assurance that comes uh, from what he says are these tests applied to our own lives. So throughout the scriptures, you may notice, uh, we're told to make our calling and election sure or to test ourselves and be sure that we're actually in Christ. Or 1 John is chock full of these ideas where there's this way of kind of looking at our life and is there fruit? So, for example, 1 John 3, 10, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So you might say, oh, I believe the scriptures. I am God's child. But then you go to this second test or the second level of assurance and you go, whoops, I'm out. I'm still living in sin. I can't stand that guy. You know, I point at Paul always. I don't know why. <laughs> That flannel's ugly. Uh, you know, I, I, your, your life, in other words, uh, doesn't give you assurance that you're actually, in fact, in Jesus. Because when you're in him, it changes you. When you truly know him, it starts to change you. Not that you're perfect, but you're not nurturing sin. You're killing it. Is that happening or not? So there's the tests of life that give you assurance that you're, you're with God, that he's with you, that he, you're abiding in his love and things. But then this third level, and this gets to the Holy Spirit, because it's ultimately something that the Holy Spirit brings. So there's, you know, deduction from scripture, the tests of life. But then finally, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones talks about this third level here. It's that which comes from the Holy Spirit. Here's what he says. I just want you to hear it from him. There's a third type of assurance, which is the highest, the most absolute and glorious, and which differs essentially from the other two. How? Like this. You notice in the first two types of assurance that what we are doing is to draw deductions as we read the scriptures. Uh, perhaps we arrive at the assurance by a process of reading, understanding, self-examination, or self-analysis. It's a deduction that we draw from the premises given, and it is right and true, but the glory of this third and highest form of assurance is that it is neither anything that we do nor any deduction that we draw, but an assurance that is given to us by the blessed Spirit himself. So it's not me going, I think I see this in my life, and I think I understand the scriptures and I believe it. It's the Holy Spirit coming in and saying, man, you are a child. 
And God does love you. And this is where he points us to Romans 8 and those verses there. And so I just read to you Romans 8, 15 to 17. Listen to this. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be be glorified with him. But I wonder if you heard it there in particular in verse 16. When the Spirit fills a person, what does he do? What is his primary purpose? His goal is to reveal to us, to convince us, to assure us that we are a child of God. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. His job is to convince us that we are loved by the Father in Christ, that nothing can separate us from his love, if you know the rest of Romans 8. Nothing, not now, not ever. Spirit comes to minister that kind of love to you and I. And that's why it can even be called the spirit of adoption. This is so essential to the ministry of the spirit, it finds its way into his title. Like he exists to help you understand you are a beloved child. If you're in Jesus, you are a beloved child of God. It was this way even for Jesus himself, if you remember his earthly life before he really went off into ministry, right? His baptism in the Jordan River there by John the Baptist. Do you remember what happens? You know, uh, John puts him under the spirit, right? The heavens open up, the spirit comes down. Spirit falls, form of a dove upon Jesus. A voice is heard from the heavens. But what does the voice say? You are my beloved son. Beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Luke 3, 22. I love you. You're my boy. Right? And, and, and we can't, this can't be lost. The connection cannot be lost on us. Because this is what happens when we are filled with the Spirit. It's as if we hear the same voice, not because we're awesome. Not because of us, but because of Jesus. And we're in Christ and we repent of our sin and we trust him and we, 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 we accept what he's done. Well, what happens is we get his status. And we get that same declaration. We're beloved kids with you. I'm well pleased. I wonder when's the last time you've heard that over your life from God the Father because he would communicate that to you if you are in Jesus this morning. And when the Holy Spirit fills you and it's like, it's almost as if you can hear that. Bears witness to my spirit. I'm a child and I'm loved. Stop striving. Stop fearing. Don't worry. Yeah, I see your sin, but have you seen the cross? I got you. Do I have time for this? Um, I want to read you one last thing. It's a very moving illustration. And then I'll, I'll, I'll kick it into gear with that last question, which will be shorter. 
but there's an illustration that Martin Lloyd-Jones goes on to give where he draws from Thomas Goodwin. It's this really beautiful uh, like kind of picture that he gives of this idea of being filled with the Spirit or baptized with the Spirit. Um, this illustration finds its way into all sorts of sermons and books on the subject because what Thomas Goodwin says here is great, but I'll just give you uh, how uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones relays it. Let me finally tell you again what I regard as one of the most beautiful ways in which this matter has ever been put. It is by Thomas Goodwin, one of those great Puritans of 300 years ago, the president of Magdalen College at Oxford during the Commonwealth and a brilliant scholar and preacher. This is the difference between what I call the customary assurance of the child of God and this extraordinary assurance that comes from the Spirit. He describes a man and his little child, his son, walking down the road, and they are walking hand in hand. And the child knows that he is the child of his father, and he knows that his father loves him, and he rejoices in that, and he is happy in it. There is no uncertainty about it all. There, there is assurance. But suddenly, and here it is, the father, moved by some impulse, takes hold of that child, picks him up, kisses him, embraces him, showers his love upon him, and then puts him down again. And they go on walking together. Lord John says, that is it. The child knew before that his father loved him, and he knew that he was his child. But oh, this loving embrace, this extra outpouring of love, this unusual manifestation of it, that is the kind of thing, the spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. You catch that? You may know. You're holding your dad's hand. You're walking, you know, side by side, whatever it is. But then all of a sudden, there's a moment where he just picks up his kid. Or there's a moment where the Spirit is poured out upon you, fills you. I mean, I, I knew. Now I know. Now I know. Right? I am loved. On the day of Pentecost, this is what utterly transforms these disciples. Fresh filling of the Spirit. In that case, it's the first real filling, at least to this degree, of the Holy Spirit. They stand up and they speak fearless. Why? Because they know the one who is over all loves them and is for them. His eye is upon them. His ear is towards their prayer. They cry out, Abba, Father, he hears like a good dad. They know this. Why would they be afraid? What's the worst man could do to them? Kill them? It just catapults them to glory, if you followed Romans 8 and the logic there. You kill me, you catapult me to glory. <laughs> Sounds crazy. You believe it? Don't you want to know God's love like this? This is what the filling of the Spirit brings. So then the last question, the second question is just simply, how do we get it? How do we get it? Um, now, uh, as I come to this question, we need to be careful we don't misunderstand. Um, I brought out in, in, in the weeks past that, you know, uh, this whole thing, this filling of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost happens suddenly, if you notice there in verse 2. It's like they're praying, they're doing their thing, they know God's going to come, whatever, but suddenly it comes. And I drew out from that the fact that the Holy Spirit is sovereign, and we can't reverse engineer a fresh filling. We can't manufacture it. I can't schedule a revival for you. I can't give you three steps to being filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, there are things we can do. There are steps we can take to put ourselves in the way of that filling, to prepare for the filling. But man, it's ultimately up to the, the, the good pleasure of a sovereign God. It happens suddenly, whenever it happens. We're expecting it and not expecting it at the same time. 
And so in weeks past, I've, I've, I've put out a few ideas, like, you know, we can read the scriptures. Galatians 3 talks about you, you, you hear the gospel preached and the spirit moves with power. You know, we could devote ourselves to prayer. That's what Paul's doing in Ephesians 3. The church is doing there in Acts 1 and 2. You know, you can, you can devote yourself to prayer, crying out like D.L. Moody for it. That's fine. This morning, I'm just going to give you one that I think tucks in a little bit more with the discussion we've been having here about being full. Here's another thing you can do to prepare yourself to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You can empty yourself of everything else. In other words, you can surrender. You can be monitoring your life. Am I, am I holding on to something that I need to let go that's not fully submitted to God? You know, lay everything at his feet. That's one thing you can do to prepare for the fullness. Because there's a principle that we can draw, I think, from all that we've been talking about, and it's simply this. You can't be filled with the Spirit if you're already full of something else. So if you're already full, you're already busy, tied up, got a lot of obligations, got a lot of things, you desire this, desire that, then of course you're not going to be full of the Spirit. You're already full. It's the same principle that your mama knew back when she would scold you for eating dessert before dinner, right? Or eating sweets, right? Before dinner time. What she used to say, Junior! My mom didn't talk like that. Maybe your mom did. Junior, you're going to spoil your appetite. You put that cookie down, right? What does spoil your appetite mean? It means you're going to put junk in your belly so that when the good nutritious stuff comes around, you have no more room for it. Well, some of us live like that. Some of us are doing that right now in the realm of the spirit. It works the same, I think. It's why James would say, friendship with the world is enmity with God. You, you got to make a choice. Am I going to be kind of trying to fill myself here or am I going to try to fill myself here? Because you can't, you can't, you know, eat your cake and save it too or whatever in the world that phrase is. You got to make a choice. Am I going to go all in with God or am I going in with the world? The Spirit can't come and fill you when you're already full of something else. I thought here of numerous examples. I can only just briefly touch on them. If you know the stories, maybe it'll fill them out for you. But I thought of the rich young ruler, right? You remember this? Full of money, possessions. Got it all, man. Got the stuff that maybe some of us are wishing we had, especially in the Bay Area. Oh, if I could just have more money. He was full of it. So full of it. They couldn't be filled with, with the Spirit. So Jesus sees and he loves them and he says, man, sell all you have, give it to the poor, come follow me. You'll have me. You can't have me if you want to have all that. Your heart is set on that. You're full of that. You can't have me. Sell it and you'll get me. And the man goes away sad because he couldn't do it. There's no room for the filling of the Spirit because he was full of money and stuff. Mama, let me eat my dessert. You're just trying to keep me from fun. So his teeth rot out and his belly starts to sour and his body starts to break. He's filling himself with cotton candy, whatever. I thought of the prodigal's, um, the prodigal son's older brother. Remember him? He wasn't full of money and possessions. That's kind of what the prodigal son went after. Money and stuff and girls and booze. The interesting thing about the elder brother, he was full of religion. 
self-righteousness, his own works. So do you remember the father, when the, when the, when the younger son comes back and repents, he throws a party for that boy. He said, man, you were dead, now you're alive. You're lost, now you're found. Come, there's mercy, there's grace. Come to the table. The son's in there, the younger son's in there eating. The older brother's out where? In the yard or wherever, you know, with his you know, arms crossed and he's pouting. And I've been obedient all this time. You never killed the fatted calf for me. You never threw a party for me. Look at my righteousness. And this boy who's, who's been dragging your name in the dirt all across town, he comes back and you do this. Mm. And the father comes out to him, begs him, come in and eat from the table of grace. And he goes, I don't need grace. I'm good. Can't celebrate grace. Can't be filled with the spirit. Because he's full of himself and his own self-righteousness. To drop that would mean to lose his identity. You know, he's already full of that. Won't let go, can't come in. Not can't come in, I should say, won't come in. Already full, can't be filled. There's another example, Jesus gives a parable of a banquet and everyone's got these excuses why they can't come. I just bought a field, I just bought some oxen. I know most of you haven't bought a field or oxen, but you got jobs, right? You got jobs and careers, and ambitions, and maybe you're full of that. I, I can't make it to the banquet. I'm already full. I'm doing my thing. Another person says what? I just got married. Those are all good things, actually. None of this is sin in and of itself. Just got married, got this relationship, filled up on relationship. How many times have we seen that? so distracted, longing for a significant other or consumed with the significant other I already have that I got no time for the bridegroom, for the banquet. So I don't know what it is for you, but I just encourage you to think about it now. We're all tempted to do this. And just remind you that principle. I mean, you can't be filled with the Spirit if you're full of something else already. Lay it at his feet. Let go of it. It's not that he's going to take out your life and make it miserable. He says, if you lose your life, for my sake, you find it. I'll fill you. The Spirit will do for you uh, what, what these things never could as he opens your eyes to the love of God for you in Jesus. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. I got nothing. I got everything. Because I got you. Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, we humble ourselves before you now. Come and show us where we need to let go. Show us what we're full of that we need to be emptied of. Help us to trust you enough to lay our lives on the ground, to take up our cross, to follow you. And Holy Spirit, in our emptiness, in our poverty, would you come and fill? Would you come and give us the kingdom? Would you pour out your spirit in this place and show us your love? Perhaps for the first time, perhaps a fresh vision of it. It's what we need more than anything else. So we invite you in this place. In Jesus' name, amen.